we live in a world now where there's so much more at stake. And to your point, the increase in national security risk has heightened where I think that we have to be more creative in how we can think about how to really get down to the meat and potatoes of what truly poses a national security risk. I don't think it's a misdeclaration, you know, in the export EEI filing system that warrants a fiscal penalty or the Department of Justice time to chase down. It's, you know, how do we know what's the next threat to national security that might not even be designated within the regulations? How are we making sure that what is being done around what's documented within the regulation and the lists are compliant. Global companies face unprecedented risks and challenges in today's economy. To mitigate these legal and economic risks, companies are rapidly embracing and elevating the importance of robust ethics and compliance programs to promote positive corporate citizenship. On Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, you'll hear from industry leaders and insiders about how to create effective ethics and compliance programs that will mitigate risks and maximize financial performance. Here's your host, Michael Volkov. Welcome, everybody. I'm really happy to have Gabrielle Griffith here. She is from BPE Consulting. And before I give a little blurb on this, let me just tell you why Gabrielle is here. She is a director at BPE Global, but most importantly, as everyone knows, I've been pushing the issue of trade compliance. And if there ever is a partner for law firms to work with, it's Gabrielle. And we've had a long time relationship working with her and her company, BPE Global. And I cannot speak more highly about somebody who's professional, incredibly fun to work with, as well as just incredibly talented and knows this issue. So, Gabrielle, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me and for those kind words and everything. It's right back at you. We love working with Volkov and your whole team's wonderful as well. Well, so we don't have Al- we don't have Alex Katoya here who is our, you know, the brains of the outfit, as I always say, when it comes to trade compliance. But the two of you have known each other for a while and have worked incredibly well together. Just a little bit more, basically, Gabrielle, not to embarrass you, Gabrielle, but you advise clients on compliance with ITAR and the U.S. EAR, Export Administration Regulations, and the Embargo and Sanctions Programs administered by OFAC as well as import compliance matters, which are also generating more work. You advise on classification, country of origin, special duty programs, such as the USMCA, focused assessments, CTPAT, which we actually worked in as well, anti-dumping, countervailing duty, as well as section 232 and section 301 matters. You know what? We should have an acronym test at the end of this, Gabrielle. I mean, trade compliance has its own language. And just I want to offer a couple comments and then turn it over to you to get sort of your observations in general. But what I'm seeing among our clients is that trade compliance is becoming more and more important. And it's no longer a silo within a compliance department. It has to be integrated into the entire operation as well as compliance department. The Justice Department is really pushing the issue and I think forcing everybody to pay more attention to this. But 
Gabrielle, from your standpoint, because you have a wide, varied client base, what's your view these days of trade compliance in general? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I've been in this game a very, very long time. And from, I would say, going back 20 plus years ago, nobody had any idea what trade compliance meant. And the reality is we live in a global world. And if you are an organization, a firm, any sort of business, you are global. And I think that given the recent past few years of increased enforcement, both here in the United States, as well as what we're seeing globally, there's this escalated concept of needing to know the rules. And those are rules not only to cross borders physically, but also just to share ideas across those borders. So what I always tell my clients is, you know, this concept is not new. It's one of the oldest professions out there, and along with, you know, doctors and other professions, which I won't bring up here in this context, <laughs> but trade has been around, you know, since the dawn of the days. And I think that just for evolution and across technology and everything, we live in a global landscape where we not only are focused on exporting and importing, as I call it, the cake, your birthday cake might need a license or some, you know, pass some specific government agency requirements to be imported and exported and crossed across borders. But what's most important is to know that the recipe to that cake also just to have your folks develop and make that cake here in the United States or to you want the frosting made in the UK, and that could require a license also. So it's important for companies more than ever in this world where we're protecting our national security here. There's a few wars happening right now, always. And it's just the biggest risk is what we can't see. And I think that there's been a huge pivot in the past few years from this control around more of a tangible trade compliance program to this intangible trade compliance need to put enforcement in place. You mentioned in terms of the cake analogy, and what I think is really happening is, look, the recipe itself, I hate to use your analogy all the way down to this, but the recipe yeah. itself, <laughs> you know, transmitting the recipe itself can be a deemed export, as you know, and can raise issues. You also mentioned what I think is really the important trend here is that trade compliance now from the Justice Department's view because of the Russia sanctions, but also in general, has become a national security issue. And as such, mm -hmm. the Justice Department is now ramping up, getting ready to, and I can just tell you from experience, if you put 25 prosecutors in an office and you say you've got to produce, they're going to produce, and their mission is to go after companies, corporate prosecutions for trade compliance violations, be it economic sanctions, be it export controls, be it ITAR. This is a game changer in that sense. At the same time, Gabrielle, I am seeing you know, that the agencies themselves, the regulatory agencies, have changed their approaches. On the one hand, it's the carrot and the stick. The stick is bigger, we're going to hit you harder, but we also want you to voluntarily disclose and come in and tell us about it. Is this something new from your perspective or has this been slowly sort of ramping up? Yeah, no, that's a great question also. We've, in a practice, have always seen the treatment of disclosure in thirds where there's disclosures for negligence, there's fraud, and then there's gross negligence right. in the middle, right? 
And in practice, what we've always seen, and as consultants, we and the disclosures that we handle, and when we encounter something, whether it be via an audit or a client calling us and having you know, that, oh, expletive moment is that when we work through disclosure, our clients have generally always gotten off with a warning letter when it's been negligence. We live in a world now where there's so much more at stake. And to your point, the increase in national security risk has heightened where I think that we have to be more creative in how we can think about how to really get down to the meat and potatoes of what truly poses a national security risk. I don't think it's a misdeclaration, you know, in the export EEI filing system that warrants a fiscal penalty or the Department of Justice time to chase down. It's, you know, how do we know what's the next threat to national security that might not even be designated within the regulations? How are we making sure that what is being done around what's documented within the regulation and the lists are compliant. So what that means is companies can no longer turn a blind eye. Companies need to really have a good sense of what the government expects on the import and the export side in terms of their compliance, that they have these basic checks and balances in place. And if you don't have that, then the government is going to bring down the hammer a little harder because you can't claim negligence anymore in the sense that we used to see it. That's interesting. The other question that I get a lot of times, and if we were advising a client in a perfect world where we could organize internally the export control or import control program to make sure that no one person can get a red flag, resolve the red flag themselves, and then get in trouble. But what I see all too often, and I'd love to get your reaction to this as well, is I see all too often that right before the shipment is going out from the warehouse, somebody goes, oh, wait, did we check sanctions? Or somebody, this is years ago, the story of somebody's getting on an airplane with a computer that has encrypted software on it, and they're not allowed to take that because it's an export. And they go, oh, I got to get off the plane. They were told to get off the plane. We had a client where that happened. How do you sort of get your arms around this issue to make sure that, and let's go all the way to a complex supply chain that is from various countries sourcing materials and then sending them out all over the globe? How do we get our arms around the organization to make this thing function, this compliance program? That's what is really difficult, I'm finding. Yeah. And we always go, our mantra is you you push everything as upstream as possible. So if we're thinking about from an export side, and it's hard to think about things before I say think about things from an export side, it's really, we don't live in an age where it's siloed to either export because you'd be hard pressed if you say we only export, we don't import to really isolate it at that. But for the sake of this discussion, for this point, if we think about an export, when you pull it up the supply chain, that means thinking about the back to the cake and and recipe analogy, it's the NPI, it's the new product introduction. It's when we talk to our clients who have, whether they're working on development and production of a new software, a new hardware, it's a new semiconductor, it's a new missile, it's a new sweater for if you're a retail company, whatever it is, if that's an import side, but when you're having that kind of first meeting, that new product introduction, whatever the version of that, that your company kind of calls it, is the moment when trade compliance has to say, I have to be brought into this, or there has to be a process. You have to be trained to know if your NPI, 
raises the product thresholds to X, Y, and Z parameters. Or if we're thinking about sourcing a material from a place that I haven't vetted yet, it's about any changes in the product or any change in our supply chain or any change or addition to our portfolio should at least have my eyes on it so that I can make the determination. Because too often, to your point, we see oh, it's a shipment and it's going through its normal screening process and, oh, it's a sanctioned party or, oh, it's a restricted party or, you know, it needs a license and now we're in the waiting game for a license. And even at that point, those are all tangible, like it can't ship or it needs a license, now we wait. But you might be in violation, back to your deemed export comment, if that needs a license and it's that shipment, have you had foreign nationals working on that at your facility in Los Angeles? Because Chances are you're also in violation and might now have a disclosure if you've been in R&D on working on that controlled recipe for the past three years. So our recommendation and when we're working with our clients, so it's where does the root of this product discussion occur and what does that look like? Walk me through it. Let me come and sit on site with you. Invite me to the meeting so I can sit. I don't want to rebuild any process. I want to look at what you have in place and enhance it so that this stopgap happens way upstream so that we're screening new business prospects way upstream. We're looking at the product, we're looking at the tech, we're looking at the software so that you know what you're dealing with. I mean, basically what you're saying is something that we tell compliance all the time. You need a seat at the table and a seat at the business Mm -hmm. table such that when a new initiative or NPI, as you call it, is going to be considered that, boom, right then and there, trade compliance is saying, here are the things we have to resolve from my perspective, right? And then where you need Absolutely. to know that in advance and then build the controls that are going to be needed to make that yep. product work and not run into these last minute situations. I don't know how many times we've run into, and I'm even by your anecdotal reference there, we can't send this. We got to wait for the license from commerce. Yeah. Three months, you yeah. know, two months. Absolutely. And then everybody sh- is shaking their head. Oh no, two to three months. I got to wait. And we'll try our best Mm -hmm. to push it through, right? But in the end, Mm -hmm. we shouldn't be in that position if we started the organization the way you were just talking about. Exactly. And I think, again, the stakes are so high these days that there's no threshold of company size that there has to be a seat at the table. And a CEO, it is time that the C-suite realizes this because the only way change happens is with top-down buy-in and top-down driving it. I can't tell you how many times we get pulled in by a manager or director and they're like, they know what needs to happen, but the CEO can't really say, oh, it's something handled somewhere in my organization. Companies have to realize that the stakes are high. Trade compliance matters. The amount of times I've gotten on a call and it's, you know, a general counsel even or someone in the C-suite saying like, oh, I don't see how this applies to us. We're non-controlled. We don't export anything. We just do yeah. this. And I'm like, okay, well, let me tell you about some cake and recipes. Yeah, but not I, only that. And they're like, oh, I get it. But <laughs> so. Not only that, it's like, how many times have you heard, oh, this is an ear 99 product, so yeah. we don't have to worry about no, no. anything. That's not the reality. Yeah. And there's this it's an older mentality that there's nothing that applies. But for example, there's so many risks that go around just in the ear. We're talking about with classification and, you know, it's almost like putting a puzzle together to figure out where you go. But what I'm starting to see, and particularly in the software industry, you know, and encryption and the ear regulation of that, there's so many nuanced issues that have to be examined upfront, 
like you're talking about. When you're saying, let me see the recipe, let me see this. And I know that BPE does a lot of work in that area to help people gain the proper classification and things like that, where you can't necessarily always rely on a manufacturer who gives you a product who says, hey, this is the way we classify it. Sometimes that's not right. But bringing in that yeah. sort of independent view from within the company, is that something that you guys support and you want to see? Isn't it true in terms of the operation of a compliance program? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we want to see that in practice. And when you talk about the kind of older mentality of the way things have always been done, we've also, when companies say, oh, we're ER 99 or, you know, we're fine and our manufacturer told us so. We've seen it play out where, you know, lo and behold, it's not. But we've also seen the reverse with the older mentality. We've both been around pre-export control reform where companies are saying, oh, well, we manufacture semiconductors that are used in missiles or satellites where I talk or we're funded by DOD. We make vaccines that are used by DOD. You know, just various examples of we manufacture certain components for nozzles, sod rocket ships. And... Yes, those things absolutely are ITAR, or they are referenced in the ITAR regulations on the USML. However, when we go in and companies are like, we're ITAR and they have an ITAR control program in place, and they're so proud of, you know, all these really like tight IT controls they've got. And we go and we're like, you're over controlling yourself. And we get it that from a business standpoint, you have contracts that you have to satisfy and have that program in place. But you don't always have to treat everything like that. So we like to kind of come in and say, number one, are you truly ITAR? Sometimes you are, sometimes you're not. And if we can decontrol them where we can come to a happy medium where they can honor the contracts that they have with DOD or with the Honeywells and the Raytheons and the true ITAR controlled organizations out there. But as subcontractors, there's this kind of fine line that they have to walk where there's this need to really understand or be trained or have experts come in and designate and say, you know, don't over control yourself. Because we do see the under controllers like, oh, we're ER99, we're fine, or oh, we don't export. But we also see so much of the reverse, which is just companies really over controlling or saying, you know, we don't hire foreign nationals, we only hire US nationals. And I'm not an HR expert, but, you know, I'm pretty sure that would be considered discrimination. So it's, don't close doors or companies that say, oh, we don't even chase government contracts because we don't want to be ITAR. And it's like, well, you're closing off a huge avenue of business for your company. So we want to kind of teach you and encourage you to understand, you know, what that would look like from a trade compliance standpoint and how you could support it and have it not be, you know, this kind of four letter word that you might have heard right. and, and be so serious. Right, ITAR. Yeah. yeah. But so you know what? what that is like fascinating to me that you found situations where people are over-controlled. So in other words, they actually can become more efficient once they really understand how the trade controls apply to their business. And it's interesting to see that people are overly protective, conservative with regard to, let's say, ITAR, or we've seen situations with regard to the ear as well, where people think they are under a specific category and they're not or they don't see the applicable exception and how it works. And then we say, look, we've got great news for you. You don't need to get a license for this. And the one thing I've noticed about the commerce, you know, BIS is they don't send back the license application saying, 
you don't need a license. They process it and they give you the license. And then we found out for one client, you don't need a license for these. And we confirmed it with the BIS staff, which is amazing. So that shows me that, look, there's so many pluses here to ensuring we have the proper compliance and ensuring that we don't have too many controls. Free the business up. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest, I mean, it's not only operationally about, you know, freeing the business up, but I think especially when we see clients kind of, we'll call it decontrol themselves from ITAR and EAR, I think what we've seen a lot over the over the past few years since reform has been clients of ours who are like, well, we're ITAR and everything is ITAR. We have an ITAR program in place. They're not even paying attention to the AR. So they're violating the AR wow. because they may have a 600, 500 series item or you know, uh, an encrypted item or just something that is controlled within the EAR, which they haven't even been privy to. So I feel like there's this kind of oldie moldy attitude towards a BIS and the export administration regulations, which is, you know, well, we're ITAR and state and that's the highest control. And yes, though state is in our order of review, kind of above DOC, it's still there's a whole set of regulations over there you have to pay attention yeah. to and make sure that, you know, if you're ITAR, but you actually are EAR, there might That again, also be a applies in, there. you know, the sanctions context too with OFAC and EAR, that you got to make sure that you're going through those yeah. as well. I've seen that situation arise. Well, let's yeah. talk about my favorite topic, enforcement, for a second. And DOJ is definitely, and I know the head of the National Security Division, I actually worked, we worked together. Matt Olson, who's terrific. But this initiative in terms of going after criminally prosecuting individuals and companies, in particular companies, for export control violations, ITAR violations, and sanctions violations. And what they're looking for and where this gets complicated is in terms of voluntary disclosures, you may do a voluntary disclosure to the Department of Commerce, to BIS, let's say, or to OFAC, or to ITAR. You now also have to ladle on top of that, should we do a separate disclosure, if we have any evidence of willful intent, not negligence like you're talking, but to the Justice Department Mm -hmm. with regard to intent where somebody, not that they have to know the exact regulation that they're violating, but that they're doing something bad. And I think this raises a lot of complications here because it is such a complex area and we have to do more training. We have to build more controls. But to me, what you've been talking about in terms of voluntary disclosures, the agencies are definitely encouraging it. And I think for the most part, we do take advantage of it because these are our regulators and particularly BIS and DDTC. If we don't get along with them and we're in trouble with them, we're not going to get our licenses. That's just the way it works. How do you see, you know, the voluntary disclosure process? And I know, and I wanted to set you up on this as well. I know that you attended recently Matt Axelrod's fireside chat and from the Commerce Department perspective, but what are you seeing yourself? And also, what did you hear Matt Axelrod talking about at this fireside chat about voluntary disclosures? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So as I mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, we live in this era where I think the biggest challenge with the continued growth of technology and the amazing work that the companies specifically here in the United States are doing, 
the biggest challenge is really keeping up with what we don't know. Never worked on the enforcement side, but my assumption is that I work with a lot of new startup clients who are working on technology that are considered emerging technologies, but aren't actually codified within the USML or the CCL. So for example, AI. Right. And right. so I would say that from an enforcement standpoint, when I was listening to that fireside chat with Axelrod last week, it was really interesting to see uh, the creative ways that the enforcement agencies are looking to wrap their arms around how to get industry's involvement in a larger capacity than what is kind of the standard disclosure. And what I mean by that is, I think number one, less on on the BIS side, but I don't know how familiar with kind of the the FinCEN and the BIS, the the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network and the efforts that have been kind of happening over there to have the reporting with the banks. I know that, you know, we've certainly seen an increase in clients being flagged by their banks coming to us and saying, hey, you know, we got this notice from our bank and they're looking at our software and we're like, yeah. So that has certainly driven the level of enforcement where now the banks have eyes on industry. We're seeing specifically what Axelrod mentioned on the forecast for 2024 with the VSD policy changes. I think the first he was saying if you find a disclosure, and we see this all the time with our clients, if we are auditing, we find something, we say, hey, listen, you know, this is disclosable. Let's call in one of the great attorneys that we work right. with. Let's privilege this. And we get this question from our clients all the time, like, do I have to? Right. <laughs> and that is always, you know, it's a business decision. It's usually what we say. And then we go through the pros and cons. So I think one of the first policy changes that he touched on was that You know, that's certainly a business decision, but if you knew about a violation, you chose not to disclose, fine. But if DOC uncovers it, it will be an aggravating factor. And again, I've never seen that. I I haven't seen that documented in regulations. I haven't really heard that. It's always, it makes sense. And I would have said it, I would have kind of operated on the assumption, like if you knew there was a problem and you didn't fix it. So I don't know if it's if you knew about it and fixed it and didn't disclose, would it be aggravating? Or if you knew about it and didn't do anything about it, right. would it be aggravating? So well, we I, always counsel, no clarity. matter what, you've uh-huh. got to remediate it. No matter sure. what. You've got to fix it, right? Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, I think some folks out there are more in the do nothing, act casual camp. So, and then the second one that was, you know, interesting to me, it was very, I will call it very godfather. Um, I call it the godfather <laughs> policy page because to me it was more of of this. I mean, I have small right. kids, so you know, a lot of tattletale, a lot of tattling oh, around I... here. Effectively telling each other if your competitor, you know, if you are abiding by the regulations and doing everything about the board, but you know, your your main competitor is still violating the regulations, and that's obviously causing you harm. If you tell DOC. Apparently, you'll get some credit in the bank, and that was the expression, you know, Gabrielle. Not- that was the expression. You get credit in the bank, like you have an account. At the- yeah, yeah. I had, I kind of heard. I was like, wait, so you get paid? And then, and then as he was coming talking about it more, I was like, oh no, this is like, you know, you did me a favor, and one day I will call upon you for a favor. <laughs> I like and- the Godfather analogy. That definitely will. Yeah, like, this is the Godfather, but I mean. You know, for me, it's interesting. I think I could kind of provide my 
input both ways. But to me, I think that the, the positive aspect of that very much addresses the fact that, you know, no matter how many DOJ prosecutors you put in a room, the, tr- the fact of the matter is that I, again, being from industry and working so operationally on the ground and really closely with a lot of nascent technology out there, you're just not on the ground. And these companies are on the ground, they're in the trenches, they're cutting edge, they know what's happening, they know what's coming. And that is really, there's a gap there. And I think there's an opportunity. And I think that specifically for companies like ours and for yours, I think that for the government to lean heavily on industry is super important. But I think that there's also a need for the government to lean on People like consultants who are in this space and you are the space. I know they mean a lot on think tanks, which is obviously super important from more of the macro policy standpoints. But I think we are, we see so much and are kind of privy to these conversations that are so interesting and um, at a level that are not intimidating for the companies because we're not enforcement, we're not coming from the government, but we're coming with the knowledge of regulations and the knowledge of the regulatory changes kind of hot off the press. This is what we live and breathe, dream right. and have nightmares about. Right. So I think that there's an opportunity, uh, if you still talk to your friend Axelrod, for a kind of tighter relay of communication, because I very much see the government putting, there's been a shift, I would say, from the government perspective, even more in a collaborative way with companies. You know, we're not the big bad wolf. We're not coming you know, necessarily right. <laughs> out the gates to to do harm, but, you know, work with us and, and have this be a two-way flow. But I think that there's, at least I don't know of a lot of engagement between the government arms and the consultants firms who are really right. on a more operational level. Because we right. certainly know that a lot of them I see like, working. Yeah, Matt, Matt Axelrod, I, I work with at the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. He's a terrific person. And I think... You know, the way I see this sort of adjustment in their policy is, and it is, look, there were a lot of routine VSDs. And those, I think their idea is to really process those faster, no penalties, slaps on the wrist, you know, don't do it again. Thank you very much for doing this. On the other hand, he made the point, and I think he's right about this, that you had Seagate where there was a deliberate deliberate decision made to continue to deal with Wowie while their competitors mm-hmm. had all sworn off dealing with selling, you know, HDDs to Wowie. And so now they got the highest administrative penalty ever of 300 million. And we've yet to hear from the Justice Department. And I think the Justice Department is going to use that case to make a point, which is if you deliberately violate export controls, this is what is going to happen to you. And I think your point about making sure that there's sort of a back and forth communications process is well taken. And I think that we can be, in the end, entities like you, consultants like you, you see it on a day-to-day basis, what is going on here. And if it's a lot easier to say to a client, look, I know for a fact, if you put this in as a VSD, nothing's going to happen. And the reason I can assure you of that is this, this, and this. We give them the, our opinion, but that, you know, we, we don't know for sure it could be handled. Who knows what happens? Yeah. You know, so I, I think that 
their attempt to sort of provide more stability or certainty around this is a welcome thing. But I think uh, your point is really well taken that this has got to be a communication type thing. And frankly, BPE or consultants like yourself are really in the trenches. And also you raise a really another good point, which is emerging technologies. We're talking about new technology. Mm -hmm. We're talking about a new part of our economy that, you know, we want to make sure flows perfectly. You know, I'm preaching to the choir here, Gabrielle. But anyways, listen, we've kept you long. Thank you so much for your insight, your your guidance. We just think the world of you and BPE and the work that you guys do, you are great partners for us. If a listener wants to reach out to you and needs some help in this area, and I would encourage anybody with any questions, I'm not trying to make Gabrielle's life miserable, but I'm saying, please get in contact with Gabrielle. How did they get in contact with yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. This is great. And I can be found pretty much any social. Well, LinkedIn is my only social, but our website, bpeglobal.com, has our direct emails as well as phone numbers. And LinkedIn is always a great resource as well. Well, thank you again, Gabrielle. And you know, good luck to you. And we look forward to continuing to work with you. Thank you again for all your time today. I know we took a chunk of your time and yeah. thanks again. The feeling is mutual. You, Your firm is wonderful and we love partnering with you guys. So here's to an excellent year. It'll be interesting to watch these, these VSDs play yeah. out. If you enjoyed this episode, the best way to support the show is by subscribing on your favorite listening platform. To learn more and connect with Michael Volkov, go to volkovlaw.com.